Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, everybody. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best advice. It's Friday, April 27th. I'm Chris Hardy. Today, we've got another story from Vice Magazine's April publication, The Dystopia and Utopia Issue. Today, we're talking to the man who helped design a 10,000-year nuclear waste site marker. What that means is that centuries and centuries from now, when you and I are very dead, but our nuclear waste is still super dangerous, future humans will have fair warning about it. Plus, the guy we're talking to is a longtime friend and colleague of one of my favorites, Carl Sagan, so you know this is going to get good. A lot of us have watched Carl Sagan's 1980 TV series Cosmos, which made complicated astronomy accessible to millions of people. I'm personally a huge fan of Carl Sagan. He had this magical brand of science and spirituality that when you were listening to it as a young person kind of made you fall in love with space. He was quite possibly the first guy who talked about aliens in mainstream media without sounding totally insane. But Carl Sagan didn't work by himself. He had this whole team of people working around him and with him. One of his colleagues was John Lomberg, who also specialized in SETI, or the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And because Lomberg was working with Sagan on communicating with far future audiences, aka aliens, he was asked to develop a special marking system to deter humans 10,000 years from now from entering what is currently America's only active nuclear waste depository. This place is called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP for short. John Lomberg is an out there, heady, really interesting guy and definitely worth a good listen. So today we have Features Editor Brian Anderson talking with the man himself, John Lomberg. Well, to begin, can you tell me about yourself? So who are you and what do you do? My name is John Lomberg. I'm an artist. I live in Hawaii, as you may hear from the chickens in the background. I'm out in the country, in coffee country. I uh, lived here about 30 years. And part of the reason I moved here is Hawaii is the world center for astronomy. And as an artist, astronomy has been my main source of inspiration. I had a long partnership with Carl Sagan and was his uh, visual partner on essentially all of his projects. And so for me, getting involved in something like the, uh, uh, the whip was, uh, was quite an unexpected departure. Yeah, I bet. And we can dive into some of those uh, particular projects as we get rolling here. But can you take me back to the moment you first met Carl Sagan? I had read about uh, him and read his work for a long time before I met him. He was uh, one of the most prominent astronomers or scientists in the world involved in the search for extraterrestrial life and intelligence. And SETI and just the whole notion of uh, looking at the possibility of life on other planets as real science as opposed to science fiction whether that's uh, 
looking for chemical signatures of life on Mars or messages from other civilizations. Before uh, Sagan, it was it was kind of a teehee fringe stuff that no science, no scientist really took seriously. But after Sagan, it was squarely in the domain of uh, of science. He was working on the Voyager Golden Record project, which I would argue is maybe the most well-known time capsule. Can you explain a little bit about the project itself, how Sagan was involved and how he brought you on board? The bond between me and Carl was based on a mutual obsession, you might say, with the idea of extraterrestrials and what they might be like and how we might contact them and what we might say to them. Uh, This was something that we just talked about endlessly. And uh, Carl actually had the opportunity to make a message for extraterrestrials that he and his colleague Frank Drake put on NASA's Pioneer spacecraft. This was something that's become a cultural meme. Everybody has seen this picture of the man and the woman. The man's holding up his arm and greeting. It's a drawing, a line drawing. And then there's a picture of the spacecraft and some scientific symbols. But this was our first uh, message out of the solar system sent to the stars. And for me, it just blew my mind. And that was really the impetus that caused me to get in touch with Carl and started our working together. The Pioneer plaque was so mind-blowing to me that it was the impetus for starting our contact and our collaboration. And several years into it, he got the opportunity again to make a message. Uh, This time, Franks thought instead of doing a plaque for the same weight and space, let's do a phonograph record. You could get a lot more information onto it. And that was the origin of the golden record concept. And Carl put together a small team to actually execute it. And he invited me to be on it as the design director. This wasn't anything digital. This was an old style vinyl analog LP, except made of copper instead of vinyl for durability. It was put in a box along with a cartridge and stylus to give anybody who finds it a clue on how to play it. And it was bolted onto the side of each of the two Voyager spacecraft, which were launched in 1977 and are still on their way out of the solar system to the stars where they will travel forever unless found. And if they are found, the idea of the record was to tell whoever finds it something about who we were. Can you tell me about some of the the images and sounds you selected to include on the record and what, what was your selection process like? We had enormous challenges in making this record. The first was time. We only had six weeks to do the whole project. And in some ways, that's the most extraordinary number. Even though I can say that the cover drawing that I made for the record that tells extraterrestrials how to play it, that drawing will last a thousand million years, maybe the longest lived piece of human art. And that's amazing. But what's even more amazing is that we had to do this whole thing in six weeks. Just to, to to clarify, you said a thousand million years, correct? That's a really long time. That's a really long time because space is a very benign environment to machinery. It's mostly empty, but occasionally a tiny bit of dust will hit the surface of the record and make a tiny little crater. So the lifetime of the cover drawing 
and the lifetime of the record is based on how long will it take for the accumulated dust hits to wear through the uh, metal cover that has the drawing that I made. And a conservative answer to that is a thousand million years. And then maybe another thousand million years to actually damage the playing side, the outer facing side of the record so it can't be played. And then maybe another billion years to get to the inner side. So we're talking about time scales almost as long as the age of the earth, certainly far longer than the age of humans, let alone civilization. I think if you put any group of people together and said, you have a hundred pictures to describe the earth, what would you show? And I bet everybody would come up with similar lists. You'd want to show people and animals and plants and landscapes and cities and people doing all kinds of characteristic things. So I think what you show is pretty obvious. How you show it is a little trickier because we bring so much to any picture we look at. We know so much going in, including that it's a picture. Whereas our potential viewers know nothing of that. So on the one hand, you want to make the pictures as easy as possible to understand. On the other, you want to have as much information as possible in them, which are kind of two conflicting uh, requirements. So the concept of what do you show was easy. Finding the right pictures, again, within six weeks and also getting legal permission to use them was uh, was quite a challenge. The records went out in 1977. And if we can just hop ahead about a decade or so and hear a bit about the work that you do helping design a nuclear waste site marker fit to last 10,000 years, which is sort of central to the the story that we're running in this new issue of Vice Magazine. Can you, so can you tell me a, a bit about how that project came together and also how Sagan and yourself were involved? The Voyager record seemed like a unique once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, as indeed it was. I never expected that uh, it would be of any use for anything else, much less something having to do with nuclear waste. But when the government decided to build a waste repository, and the uh, EPA required them to provide a marking system so that nobody in the future would dig into it, they, they found they had a problem because the waste would say, stay toxic for so long that any marking system had to endure for you know, many, many centuries, millennia. Nobody knew how to do that. And it was thought that maybe one of the areas of expertise that might shed some light on the problem were these crazy people who were trying to communicate with extraterrestrials, because how do you create a message for an unknown audience very, very far away in time about whom you know very little? So uh, they contacted Sagan and asked him if he wanted to be on the uh, panel, and he declined, but he nominated me in his place. So. To me, it was kind of funny because the direction of most of my art has been astronomical. I love painting the Milky Way and I've done big, detailed, accurate portraits of our, of our galaxy. And it's wonderful for people who love astronomy. It doesn't seem to have a lot of practical application on Earth, certainly not to big, real problems. 
But suddenly I found myself in the position of having to think about the health and welfare of humans 10,000 and more years from now. And the skills that I had developed in SETI turned out to be useful for that. You have a great line in the story. You, you ask, how do you establish something common? That's a big hurdle to interstellar communications insofar as interfacing with, quote unquote, different minds is hard to predict. So how do you establish something common with an audience that you have no way of knowing? In any communication, you have to decide how you're going to approach it. Communicating with a three-year-old verbally is very different than communicating in an email to a college professor. Uh, the, the medium is different. The, uh, the language is different. The intent is probably different. Uh, the level of sophistication is different. And in any communication we have with any other person, we do a very complex and unconscious uh, assessment of, do I speak the same language? Will he understand my accent? You know, there are a million little things that you, you think about. And part of the job in, in SETI or in WIP was trying to make those things explicit. And in the case of extraterrestrials, the assumption has been that for us to communicate with them, if we're using radio telescopes, and they at least know about radio telescopes and the physics involved. So we know that that's common. And we think that math will also be universal. Two and two equal four everywhere. So if we start with that, that's what we can build from. In the case of the, uh, the human audience for WIP, it was a far, far easier problem. For one thing, uh, part of the ground rules were that we were uh, designing a message for humans that were biologically identical to us. It wasn't for aliens. It wasn't for robots. It wasn't for some future evolution of the human species, maybe bio-enhanced computers. Who knows? That's not who this message is for. This message is for humans like us. So we assume they have the same eyes. They have the same brain. They have the same visual system. They bring a lot of the same cognitive processes to it that, that we do. So uh, we tried to decide what could we assume that they would be able to understand. Well, we assumed that they would have some kind of language. It might not be the same language as ours, but it would be language, and probably they'd have some written language. So if we used writing, they may not be able to understand the language, but they would recognize that it was writing. So given that, was there any writing that would be more likely to be understood than others? So that led us down the path of looking at uh, the lifetime of languages, how languages change and evolve, when languages don't evolve and they're frozen, which was very useful for our purposes. And similarly, when we considered uh, the other things that people use to communicate besides language, namely symbols, were there symbols that we might be able to use? that anybody would recognize and understand? And was there any kind of artwork we could use that anybody would recognize and understand? And in all of these areas, with the help of experts in, in the various fields, we tried to isolate those, those things that we thought would have the best chance of, uh, of being understood. And so what did that final concept look like? 
Well, I would say that the guiding principle was, first of all, it's a shotgun approach, not a magic bullet. There's no one perfect solution. And we found ourselves in our discussions coming up with uh, alternatives. For example, uh, let's say you're going to have uh, your message inscribed on some kind of marker and you, you figure out something durable enough that it's going to last for a long time. Should it be a few big markers, say, outlining the uh, sort of the footprint of the, of the waste repository, which is 2,000 feet deep? Or should it be a lot of small markers, maybe scattered through the whole site? Well, do both. Should the big markers be very tall to be prominent and not get covered up by sand? Or should they be kind of squat and hard to topple over? Well, do both. So kind of throwing a lot of things at the wall and hoping that, that, that some of it sticks. Similarly with languages, uh, have your message in a whole variety of languages with some blank space for future generations to add more as new languages evolve with the hope that some of the languages would remain in, in the knowledge of whoever was looking at it. And similarly, uh, one thing that was I, I found interesting was that the kind of a pictorial narrative, the storyboard, the comic strip, uh, was something that seemed to uh, crop up all over human art, which was a series of pictures. First this happened, then this happened, then that happened. You see it in the Bayou Tapestry. You see it in the, uh, the walls of Egyptian tombs. You see it in the uh, winter counts of the Plains Indians. You know, they're, they're little narratives. So we thought that if we used a comic strip, we could really show more in detail what the whip was all about, what this waste site was, how it was made and, and what's in there. So in the end, to quote from the piece here, the tentative marker design for the for the whip, the waste isolation pilot plant, was a 33 foot tall by 98 foot wide earthen berm, inside of which there were 16 granite monuments that will display warnings in seven languages and house a spread of images, including some that look like the the iconic scream from Edvard Munch's painting of the, of the same name. And the entire complex will contain warning messages buried at various levels. The kicker is that this warning marker hasn't been built yet. It, it doesn't ig exist yet. Can you tell us why? Well, as long as the site is in operation, you don't need warning markers. You have fences, you have guards, everybody knows what's there. The only time you need a warning marker is when the site is closed and everybody goes home and it's just abandoned. And that won't happen for, I think the whip is intended to last for at least 50 years. And I wouldn't be surprised if the lifetime was extended to more than a century. So I would say that there really is no plan for a warning marker now. I think that what our teams uh, proposed was a kind of a baseline suggestion of here are some of the issues and here are some of the possible solutions. But one of our main and I think our most important uh, recommendation was we don't know what's going to work. Test it. You know, we think we have ideas of what the right materials are. Try it. Put them out in the desert for 10 or 20 years and see what happens to them. Take your inscriptions or pictographs or, or whatever and show it to people. Show it to people who don't know what it is and see what they make of it. Do it with different people around the world and, you know, illiterate people and uh, 
construction workers in foreign countries, you know, who might represent the kind of people who come on the whip in the future. But just, you know, test it. You have plenty of time. And the second thing was WIP isn't the only waste site. There are waste sites all over the world. Whatever you come up with, do it internationally and standardize it. If every site is marked differently, everyone presents a unique problem. If they're all marked the same way, as long as some of them remain in memory, then they're all understood. To anyone out there who is considering sending a message to the future, in whatever form it may be, it could be like your classic backyard time capsule, it could be a message encoded on the blockchain, whatever. What is one bit of advice that you would impart to them? Be honest. Honesty. Yeah. I think because I studied communications, there was a dimension of the whip problem that, that we haven't discussed, and that's believability. Tombs have always been marked with dire warnings about what would happen to you if you entered the tomb. And it never keeps people out because the more you try to warn people not to go into something, the more curious they are about, about what's there. I felt that trying to scare people off would not work. And we've also, in our kind of ironic, cynical age, become very suspicious of the honesty of monuments. We see a monument to a general, you know, on a horse, and we think, yeah, how many ordinary soldiers died so you could get that statue? And we're more suspicious of the motives of kings and potentates. We look for the subtext. You know, we look back on a lot of the monuments of, uh, of our own history and we see a subtext of, uh, of, of slavery and domination of Native Americans and all kinds of things. I looked as a model at the National Park Service. And what I mean is if you go to Yosemite or Yellowstone or any other park and you turn out to a scenic overlook and there's this plaque and it tells you what you're looking at and here are the name of those mountains and here's how high they are. It never occurs to you to doubt the honesty of what you're being told. You know, you just assume that, yeah, that's the name of the mountain. Uh, why would they lie? Uh, there's no strong argument. They're not trying to persuade you about something. They're not trying to take you by the shoulders and shake you. They're just telling you something and you believe it. And my goal in the whip was telling them something in a way that they would believe it, not look for some hidden motive of trying to impress them or scare them, just tell them the truth. So I would say that if anybody giving a message to anybody, anytime, I would say that's generally a good principle. Tell the truth. To check out the full article, make sure to grab a copy of Vice Magazine or go to vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening and tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to right now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.